um, and all of us growing in Christ, which leads me to the thought for today, why do we need to grow? I was reading this story this week, uh, and it really resounded with me because it put into words things that when I was younger, I probably was thinking but did not know how to put into words. So there was this author, he um, went to a youth camp and got saved there, and he said this in his prayer. And after this, saying this in his prayer, one of the youth leaders grabs him, uh, takes him into, uh, not takes him, but has a conversation with him and, and says, okay, bro, now that you have uh, said this in his prayer, you need to read your Bible and you need to pray and you need to learn how to do these things. You need to attend church regularly because you need to grow. And this guy, I love his, this thought because it, it challenged me, but he said, oh, Sure, this guy was saying all this stuff, but inside of me, I was like, why? I've said this in his prayer, so I've got that free ticket to heaven, all right? You know, God loves me. That's great. And you just told me that nothing else I can do would make God love me anymore. Um, I'm pretty happy with school and my relationships and everything that's going on. I've Got my whole life, he's a young person, I've got my whole life ahead of me and I'm happy with it. Why do I need to grow in my faith? Why? And I think that is a problem that we need to discuss. Because so often we think that our faith, like, we don't engage in the thought that we need to grow in our faith. And our culture has given us so many aspects of our life that we need to grow in. You need to grow in your physical health. If you don't grow in your physical health, you will be taking 20 years off your life and blah, 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 blah. And true, right? Physical health is important. And not, you know, you, you, you need mental health. You know, when I was lecturing in Bible college, uh, um, I had a young student that took a day off uh, uh, going to class because he needed a mental health day. And I thought that that was a little bit interesting, that our culture has got to a place where we take time off our studies you know, academic growth, anyone? You paid to learn more, and you decided, no, I am going to go sit by the beach. Uh, isn't that what holidays and semester breaks are for as a young person? You know, I'm not talking to all those old people who's like, what is the beach? I haven't seen it in 20 years. I'm talking to the young people who go there every weekend, or maybe every day during summer. I was one of them. I was like, I'm a young person, and I'm going to live it up. I'll go to the beach, I'll go see movies, I'll do whatever I want to do. It's like, why you take, like, mental health day? Mental health important? Yes. But our spiritual health, our faith. Do we have a reason why we need to grow in our faith? Do you have a reason why you need to grow in your faith? Think about this right now. If I were to ask you, why do you need to grow in your faith? Don't just say because the pastor tells me so. Don't just say because the Bible tells me so. Don't just tell me because your parents told you so when, they, when you were growing up as a kid. Why do you need to grow up in your faith? Not because a youth leader pressured you to. Not because it's something that you've always thought that you needed to do, but why? You know, it's really interesting as a young person, I was like, I knew physical health was important, but I didn't have a why. And so when I had a chance to eat KFC every single week, would I do it? Yes. Because there was no why. Now as a 36-year-old dad of a toddler, do I want my physical health? 
Yes, do I have a why? Yes, he's two and a half years old and takes a lot of my energy and I wish that I was at a different level. But quite often we don't question our whys until we hit circumstances, don't we? We're a bit dumb like that. We don't think about tomorrow until tomorrow is stormy and rainy and, you know, frankly difficult and we go, oh man, I wish I did something when I could. Maybe our faith needs to be thought about. The Bible tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is not something to muck around with. This is not about you getting a free ticket. The Bible does not give the picture of a free ticket to heaven. And we've spoken about this last week, last year. Last year, I think. Anyway, so why do we need to grow in faith? If you want a title for the message, it's called This Kind Needs Prayer. And I'm going to look at Mark chapter 9, 14 to 29. I'm going to read this reasonably quickly. It's a whole story here. Um, Apparently, there are too many words on the screen, so you get the reference. (laughs) You can get your Bibles out so that our multi-team don't have to keep like, where are we up to now? And click next. Thanks, multi-guys. I do appreciate what you do. And when they came to the disciples, they being Jesus... Peter, James, and John, all right? Remember that. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Who are the scribes? Scribes are people who are teachers of the law. Um, They often are written in as oppositional to Jesus. If you see the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, they often are, in the gospel accounts, oppositional to Jesus, all right? So there's a great crowd around the rest of the disciples, Jesus, and the other three had just gone and done something. We'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, as they come back, they see this argument, this crowd gathering, and there is something going on. Verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, him being Jesus, were greatly amazed. Wouldn't it be nice one day? When you rock up to something and everyone is amazed that you are there, for good reasons, hopefully. Um, and they were amazed, greatly amazed, and ran up to him and greeted him. And, they, and he said to them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And, and, um, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus said to the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. So it's been a while. And it, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd had come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, let your light be illuminated to us today. Let your truths 
and let your spirit be alive with us this morning. I pray that you teach us, that you transform us, and that God, that we can go from here encouraged and stirred up to do the things that you have called us to. Amen. All right, so here we have this account of Jesus' disciples, um, and, and to be accurate, it wasn't Peter, James, and John, it was the other nine. They uh, couldn't cast out this demon. And so we have uh, um, this situation where uh, Jesus wasn't there, this demon's not being cast out, the scribes had come, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle happening, right? And then uh, the father sees Jesus coming from wherever he's coming from. He comes and meets Jesus, and he says, if you can do anything, please do it. And we all relate to this, Father, I hope, at some level. When you see someone that you love suffering greatly from demonic oppression, I don't know if I've ever known a personal friend that has been affected by demonic oppression, but it sounds terrible, doesn't it? You know, this kid is suffering terribly for years and years, and his dad is desperate. He comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do something, do something. And Jesus' response is really interesting, because Jesus' response is, if I can. And then when I think about Jesus defending himself, it's weird, because Jesus doesn't say, if I can, don't you, don't you know all that I've done? Why did you come to me in the first place? If you thought that I couldn't heal your son, why would you be here in front of me right now? I can walk on water, I can raise the dead, I teach authoritatively and there are crowds that follow me, if I can. But Jesus doesn't bring his, this, this father's mind to all the things that he's able to do. He brings his father's mind to himself. And he says, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. And this is an interesting statement because this statement has then become a cornerstone, if you will, of the Pentecostal movement. And the Pentecostal movement has become the largest Christian denomination across the world, except for Catholicism, because faith moves mountains. And so with all these amazing miracles that the Pentecostal church has brought into Christianity, there are millions of people that have turned to Christ and call themselves Pentecostals. We are in, if you will, a majority movement in, in, in Christianity. And a lot of it is based on this thought about stirring up our faith to believe that Jesus still moves, which I completely, 100% agree with. However, I think there are some misunderstandings about what this means by all things are possible for one who believes. Because if we take that thought and we examine it, and listen, people, it is important to re read the Bible and to examine what, what is this claim? What does this mean? Logically, um, we, we, God has given us a mind. God has given us a mind. Our spirit is not our emotions. Our spirit is something that is inside of us somehow, and it includes our mind, it includes our emotions. We don't read the Bible and go, oh, that's powerful stuff. I love it. All things are possible. I believe. I believe that I'll be a millionaire. I'm not doubting. Where's my money bag? There is wacky Christianity. Because if we think about this, all things are possible for one who believes. What happens when you don't receive the healing or breakthrough that you're waiting for? Doesn't mean that you don't believe. It's all good and well when the miracle happens. And we go, 
My faith has brought about a great move of God. But what happens when it doesn't? What happens when we don't see what is going on? See, what we need to realize here is that I don't think Jesus was teaching us a principle of how to make God move. Jesus wasn't teaching us a principle on how to make God move. You hear that? If you're writing notes, write that down. This is not a statement about teaching us about how to manipulate God or how to make God move. This is a statement about the relationship God has with us. See, as I looked into Scripture, into the Gospels, I found that there were six occasions that Jesus says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, your faith has made you well. Six times. There are a, a couple of uh, double-ups. They, they seem to be the same story written in different gospel accounts. But there was one thing that was always similar in all six accounts. And that is that when Jesus says to a person, your faith has made you well, it is because the person has come to Jesus. Jesus heals many times without a person coming to him. One of my favorite, John chapter 5, I believe, he goes to the pools of Bethesda and comes to this guy who has been an invalid for 38 years. And he comes to this person and says, do you want to be well? And this guy's like, well, no one's here to help me. And he's grumbling around and Jesus says, well, take up your mat and walk. And the guy is healed. No demonstration of faith whatsoever. Zero. A demonstration of a narky spirit. That's what I think was going on here. He was disappointed. He was angry. He was frustrated. And he had bed sores all over his body. And, was, and Jesus heals him. Where's your faith, son? Jesus heals without us using faith. So our faith is not what makes God move. God moves because God moves. But there are occasions where when we come to God, we get to see Him move. See, I think Jesus was trying to encourage people to come to Him. You say, your faith has made you... I did the healing. Come on, let's be honest. You didn't walk here, and because you walked, you got healed. It's because I healed you. But your faith brought you here. And I think Jesus wants people to know that they are meant to come to Him, to take those steps to come to Him. So whenever we have a prayer time every single Sunday morning, what's going on here isn't about, you know... Is about coming to him and say, God, I, I, I still need this. It would be great to have this. It's, it's to seek Jesus and to seek him first. I love a conversation I had with Zach a few weeks ago. Quite often, when we have this conversation about faith and how God moves, we end up looking at God's hands and we forget about his face. The whole idea of your faith has made you well, I think it's because your faith has brought you to God. When you're with God, aren't you well? It is well with my soul because I have met with the Lord. And so I don't think that this is meant to be taken strictly as a... If you somehow stir your belief up, you get what you want. We've got to be really careful about... Because what does it even mean to stir up your faith to believe? I believe... I love our Pentecostalism. I make fun of our movement because I love it. <laughs> I'm truly and deeply in, in love with Pentecostalism because it brings this idea that God, not this idea, this truth, that God is alive and moving. But sometimes we do weird stuff. <laughs> I believe. 
Constipation and beliefs seem to have a real strong link in our faith, doesn't it? The more I push, my faith rises. Is it my blood pressure? I don't know. What is it? What if believe and faith is all about coming to Jesus in the first place? And so when we read through the story, Jesus heals this boy, right? And then the disciples came to him in private, and they said to him, Jesus, how, how did you do that? Why couldn't why could me? What just happened here? Why is it that you could heal this boy and we couldn't? What is going on? And Jesus' response is this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And I was like, what's going on here? Was Jesus referring to some kind of um, prayer that he said? And I think sometimes we take this pretty literally and we go and we look at what Jesus said. And Jesus said to this demon, Oh, you deaf and mute spirit, be gone, or whatever he said. And we go, Oh, that's the prayer. Now we've got the spiritual incantation. Whenever we see someone who is suffering, Oh, you suffering spirit, you spirit of pain, you spirit of cancer, you spirit of this, you spirit of that, get out and say, that's supposed to bring the heal. I don't know why. <laughs> I think I need water. I'm like choking on my breath. Sorry, guys. Was that the prayer that Jesus said that made the demon get driven out? I want you to think about it. Was that the prayer? I don't think it was a prayer because prayer is talking to God. Jesus is talking to demon. The demon ain't God. He wasn't praying. He was talking. He was simply rebuking the demon and demon's gone. So what did Jesus mean by this kind can only come up by prayer? What was this all about? What's the prayer? And I'll put forward to you that Jesus wasn't talking about anything specifically that he said. Because if it was that important to know the words that Jesus said in that prayer, we would have those words. The gospel writers would go, oh, that's where the power is. You deaf and mute, like, God, please give me the power right now to deal with this deaf and mute spirit. Teach me how to drive this spirit. No, no, no. uh, We don't have the words because that's not what Jesus was focused on. He was focused on not a moment of prayer, but a lifestyle of prayer. See, when we have this same story, this same account is written in, in all Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in the Matthew account, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him again, why couldn't we do this? Matthew 17, 19 to 20, this is what it says. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I hate this passage because it's so confusing. The second half sounds like an encouragement, right? If you only have faith like a mustard seed, you can move this mountain, etc., etc. Sounds really easy, right? But do you notice what Jesus said to the disciples right before he shares about how little their faith needs to be? Oh, you of little faith. 
Does this mean that the disciples had little faith than the mustard seed? I want you to think about this. This is not encouraging if you read it in that way. Jesus is being quite mean if that's how we're meant to read it. Jesus would be saying, you only need this and you don't even have it. And when I think about the 12 disciples, you only need this. You don't even, I'm like, oh my gosh. I don't even have the faith of the disciples. So if their faith is smaller than a mustard seed, what do I have? Theirs is a dust mite. Mine is an amoeba, I guess. I have an amoeba of faith. What can that move God? It can move me from my home to church. That is enough. <laughs> What is this all about? Oh, you of little faith. All you need is a small little mustard seed. I think if we read those two passages together, this can only come out by prayer, and you only need faith of the mustard seed. Isn't this what Jesus is trying to teach us, that we need to grow in our faith? We need to grow in our faith. We need to have a lifestyle of prayer because prayer builds our faith. But what is, how does prayer build our faith? How, how does it actually increase our faith? I wrestled with that and I was wondering what this is all about. And I think this is what makes most sense to me. See, in the Gospels, one of the techniques that the Gospel writers use is that they would write the gospel account not in chronological order. At best, maybe Luke did that because Luke was trying to keep an account of Jesus' life. But Matthew and Mark in particular, they didn't write it according to this happened and then this happened and this, this happened. They used a technique where they would write these stories in a format that tells a spiritual principle. This story is linked to this story and that's why they're next to each other. One of my favorites is the uh, story of Jesus going to the temple to, car, uh, to, to drive out all the money changes, and there's a story next to it about um, um, uh, the fig tree that didn't have fruit. When we see how uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke juxtapose um, the, the fig tree and um, the temple, we actually learn a little bit about what God is trying to say to us through these. And so when I looked at all three of these accounts, something was really interesting to me. Because all three accounts of Jesus casting out this demon was always after the transfiguration story. So I'm like, hey, hang on, maybe these two stories need to go together. There is something significant about the transfiguration and this episode where the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. So let's look at the transfiguration. We're not going to read the whole story. I'll just tell you what happens. This is in Mark chapter 9. So Jesus takes his three uh, closest disciples, as we know them, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he, uh, <laughs> Peter, James, and John, three white guys, and another th no, they're actually not white, three olive-skinned guys, and another three olive-skinned guys. They all look the same to me. And um, so Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they went up to this mountain. And on this mountaintop, Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. What does this mean? It literally means that he just changed. He was transformed in his figure, transfigure. And he started to glow, like really bright. 
which is kind of crazy. And then what happened is that Moses and Elijah appear next to Jesus. Moses and Elijah, in the Old Testament, Moses is the one that brought the law. Elijah is one of the top prophets. And so Elijah represents all the prophets. So this is the law and the prophets. This is the Old Testament meeting with Jesus. All right? This is what's happening on Transfiguration. That Jesus is the culmination. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so for us as Christians, when we read the New Testament and we forget about the old and we don't study the old, we don't see how Jesus is truly the fullness of the gospel because we miss out on so much. It takes time to study this, but that's why it's called meditative scripture. We read it and we read it and we read it. I don't get it. Read it again. I don't get it. Read it again. We need to up our reading level when it comes to the Word of God. I learned recently that the King James Version is written at a... Um, level 12 reading level, which is supposedly where you finish all of high school and you're reading. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean you finish high school, you're going to get that level, but that's what the uh, year 12 English is supposed to get you up to. So the, year, uh, the, the King James Version is classified as a level 12 reading level. That's where it's at. I think some of us I at level reading five when it comes to the Bible. And so we keep reading it and we're like, what the heck is going on? Level up, people. Level up. Read it again. Read it again. It doesn't matter that you don't quite get it, but you're getting it in you. Do you know how you read really long books? Read it. There's no fast tracking of reading a big book. But do you know that you can read the whole Bible easily in a year if you take five minutes a day? But some of us won't do that. Anyway, that was a total sidetrack. <laughs> I love the Word of God. And this whole reading level thing, I don't even know what the other reading levels are. Some of us, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but we love the translations that make it all really easy for us. Why are we primary school Christians? Seriously. I'm not saying that you're supposed to read the King James. I'm not a King James only. I've never read the King James cover to cover. I might try the new King James. The old King James? No. That's a year 12 reading level from 50, 100 years ago. Um... So uh, Moses and Elijah appear before Jesus, and it's amazing, so much so that Peter, James, and John, they are like scared. They're like, whoa, what is going on here? This is crazy. And then they hear a voice from heaven, and this is God. This is the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. That's Mark 9, verse 7. So what is going on here? You see, up to this point in the story, there wasn't a clear revelation that Jesus truly is the Messiah. There were clues, little indications. And a part of this is because if Jesus said right out loud, I am the Messiah, the Son of God, he would get crucified straight away. That's what would have happened. The Roman Empire did not take lightly to people who were trying to take their emperor's spot. And so if Jesus walked around, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Son of God, he would not have been able to complete the mission that God had set out for him. So he was keeping it low-key. He actually wanted people to realize this for themselves, probably. 
But when he takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and there's this transfiguration moment, and they hear the voice of God, and they see all that is going on, they had this revelation, finally, this is the Son of God. And so when you read the transfiguration story, you will find this really interesting a conversation where Peter, James, and John, after the transfiguration took place, um, they started to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what's this about John the Baptist needing to come before the Messiah? Oh, it's John the Baptist. Oh, okay. Why did that conversation take place? Because they were like, hang on, you're the Messiah. You, you, you are it. You are him. We've been waiting for you. But hang on, Scripture tells us that there was meant to be Elijah that comes before you. So, so they were joining the dots. And they were having this revelation. Jesus is the Messiah. It's weird for us because when we read this, we go, Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah, duh. These guys didn't know that yet. They were piecing it together. And so they had a revelation for the very first time that they were walking and living with the Son of God Himself. This was a key revelation. And so when they come down from the mountain, the rest of the disciples that did not have this revelation yet, they were dealing with a poor boy who was completely and utterly suffering. And I wonder whether these two stories are next to each other because Peter, James, and John got a taste of what it's like to truly be meeting with God. They were praying on the mountain and they met with God. While the disciples who did not have that moment were dealing with the stuff of this world. I think that these two things are linked. I think Jesus wasn't trying to be mean when he says this kind can only come up by prayer. He was trying to show them you need the revelation of who I am, what I have. We just sang a song about you are my champion. This is who our God is. This is what he's capable of doing. When we sing songs like that, it's not just meant to be words for the sake of it. It's meant to, hang on, I've got God with me. I have God with me. And so when I'm struggling with that situation, I have God with me. That is what the power of prayer is supposed to be like. It brings us to the face of God so that we have a revelation of who He is. According to your faith, according to how much you are pursuing God, is that how much revelation we can have and how much we get to do from there. But this is where I want to land at this morning because... The disciples that were in the world, if you will, not on a mountaintop, were doing something really significant. They were bringing healing and wholeness in the kingdom of God to where they were. People were coming to them for answers. First, his father wanted to know if they could heal their son, his son. The scribes were there because they were like, well, what is going on? They were the skeptics. I think these two groups of people represent the people that we will face in this world. We will face those that are going, hey, you've got, you've got something different on your life that I need. I know who you used to be. I know that you were as broken as I am, but there's something different about you, and I need what you got, and so I'm going to travel all the way to see what you got. I hope that there are people in our lives like that dad 
with this suffering son. I pray that our lives will be filled with these suffering people that are coming to us because there is something different about our lives. And at the same time, I also pray that there are scribes and Pharisees that come to you and go, oh, so you think you know better. You think that you got something that I don't. I hope they'll be able to say, yeah. But notice this. Those nine disciples were still in the process of building their faith. So they needed the Son of God to come and intervene in that situation. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that why we need to grow is not because of yourself. If you gauge it according to your finances, to your relationships, to your measures of success, you're fine without God. And that is part of the problem in our Western civilization. It's built on Christian principles and it got to this place where we all have what we have right now. We've all got cars, we've all got houses, we've all got jobs. And yeah, maybe some people are listening to this and say, I don't have that. Well, you're in a land of opportunity. And there's safety nets here. I've been to third world nations where there is nothing. And that, yet they have more joy than we have as a nation. If we just look at our own lives and we go, I'm okay. Just like that author that I mentioned at the start. See, this author goes on and he writes about how he got stirred up about faith and it was when he started to study this very story. And he started to realize that my personal devotion isn't about just my personal faith, but it's about how I grow my personal faith so that I impact other people. You don't need to grow your faith if you don't want to impact anyone. But let me tell you, that is not the faith that God gives to us. Because the faith that God gives to us requires us not just to receive our personal salvation, but to go and make disciples of all nations. You don't have that personal salvation on one hand. I'll take that one, but I'll slap that hand away, God. We receive all that God has for us, or we receive none that God has for us. What we need to realize is that God has called us to live lives that are extremely outward-looking. And so that's when that author started to go, that's why I need to grow my faith. Because there are people in my life that need me to grow. I want to read to you something that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a book called Revival, and he studied this passage, and this is what he says about it. You failed there, he said in effect to these disciples, because you did not have sufficient power. You were using the power that you have, and you were very confident in it. You did it with such great assurance. You were masters of the occasion. You thought you were going to succeed at once, but you did not. You will never be able to deal with this kind unless you have applied to God for the power which He alone can give you. You must become aware of your need, of your impotence, of your helplessness. You must realize that you are confronted by something that is too deep for your methods to get rid of or to deal with, and you need something that can go down beneath that evil power and shatter it. And there is only one thing that can do that, and that is the power of God. We must become utterly and absolutely convinced of our need. 
We must cease to have so much confidence in ourselves and in all of our methods and organizations and in all of our slickness. We've got to realize that we must be filled with God's Spirit. And we must be equally certain that God can fill us with His Spirit. We have got to realize that however great this kind is, the power of God is infinitely greater. And that we, what we need is not more knowledge, more understanding, more apologetics, more reconciliation of philosophy and science and religion and all modern techniques. No, we need a power that can enter into the souls of men and break them and smash them and humble them and then make them anew. And that is the power of the living God. And we must be confident that God has His power as much today as He had 100 years ago and 200 years ago so that we must, we must begin to seek the power and to pray for it. We must begin to plead and yearn for it. This kind needs prayer. When was the last time you were so moved by what kinds you were seeing in your life that you went, I can't deal with that alone? I think it's sad if my life gets to this place where I can manage it without God. Not because my life is that hard, but because there is a world that still needs the power of God. I seek the power of God not because I want to be more powerful, because in truth I do not possess the power of God but God possesses me. And when I realize that this is not about possessing more of God's power, but about allowing God to possess more of me, that's when prayer makes so much sense. I want to wake up every morning and go, God, I want to be able to do your will, not the simple little things that I can do myself, but the things that need this kind of prayer. This kind needs prayer. We're going to have communion this morning. We'll leave the band. Because I think that this is actually not about all the other things that is going on, but it's about you and God. It's about you having a moment and saying, God, have I gone cold to your purpose and your call? And if I haven't, great. I need more of you. I hope all of us have moments where we are taken to that mountaintop and have a revelation of who Jesus is. Not because it's cool to have that revelation, but it's because that revelation allows us to carry out the will of God in our lives and in our world. And so as a host team, distribute the emblems. What you are holding on to is a symbol. And it's simply a little bit of juice and a little bit of cracker. But what it's supposed to represent is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed for us. This is what Jesus did to bring you close to God. Jesus died that you would be close to Him. Jesus died that you might have life. And Jesus died so that your friends and your family and your loved ones and the community that we live in can experience that life too.
So I'm not going to become so comfortable and complacent with my personal faith that I'll have this communion and just think about myself. But I pray that as you have this, that your heart breaks like Jesus' heart breaks for us and the whole world. For God so loved the world. So let's celebrate and let's lean in to the relationship that God has with us. But let's also be mindful that this kind is still operating in this world. That this kind is still active in the lives of our friends and our family. That this kind can only be driven out by prayer, by drawing close to Jesus and having a revelation of who he is. Why don't you take the bread? We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.